chapter 1. Uh, in the Pew Bible, it's page 980. And before we jump into Philippians, I just wanted to let you know where we're going because uh, we are going to hit Philippians, the, the rest of chapter 1 today, and then we're going to take a break uh, during Lent. We're going to um, do a series on lament, uh, and we're going to use the Psalms to sort of learn how to lament. And um, this Psalm that we read this morning was a great kind of teaser, um, but basically, basically we're going to dive into five Psalms of lament over the course of five weeks uh, during Lent, and we're going to learn about what to do when we encounter things like enemies or illness, whether it's mental illness or physical illness, um, what to do when we encounter uh, a time in life when it seems like God has forsaken us. Um, so it's going to be intense, but, you know, it's Lent, so it's a good excuse to kind of dive into that stuff. So that's what we're going to be doing for the next five weeks after today. But for today, we are going to finish Philippians chapter 1. Um, and I just want to give you a little warning. Uh, Paul's going to get a little political today. All right? Um, and, you know, we're in that season. It's 2023. There's, there's an election in the fall of 2024. We're just starting to get those whispers of, like, I'm running for president, too. Yeah, me, too. Me, too. Me, too. And, like, guys, are we ready? Are we ready for another one? Are we? No, okay, but it's coming, and so um, I think passages like the one we're going to do this morning will help, um, and so I'm going to just kind of warn you, um, and here's the reason. You know, American Christians, we confuse the kingdom of God with the kingdom of America. Even though we're supposed to be dual citizens, of these kingdoms. Oftentimes we want to take both passports, trade them in for one super passport because we want the kingdom of God and the kingdom of America to be one. They're not. And the problem with doing that is it these kingdoms are at odds. They're not the same thing. The problem with conflating the kingdom of God with the kingdom of America is that doing that overinflates the importance of America and it underappreciates the transcendence of the kingdom of heaven. We need to keep these two kingdoms separate in our hearts. So not only that, we need to not just keep them separate, but we need to prioritize one over the other. And we need to let one speak to how we act in the other. We need to let our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven dictate how we interact with the kingdom of America. So in our passage today, Paul, in this letter to the church in Philippi in roughly the year 60 A.D., he has arrived finally at the, the last four verses of chapter one. He's arrived at his exhortation. He has arrived at his encouragement. This is the one thing he wants them to remember if they never see him again. 
And this is what he's going to spend the rest of the letter unpacking. So what we're learning this morning will carry through till the end. So what is it? It is to remember that they are not just citizens of Rome, but they are citizens of a new kingdom with a new king, and his name's Jesus. And they're not just citizens by name, but they are acting on behalf of this new kingdom, in the midst of this old kingdom. I went to the Museum of History and Industry on Friday with Ella, my daughter Ella's class. And right beforehand, the teacher, you know, she goes to this uh, school called Seattle Classical Christian School. And they wear these cute little uniforms. And right beforehand, the teacher was instructing them, all right, kids, we're going to show these people in the museum honor. We are going to steward the space. Why? Because the word Christian is on our uniform. We are representing not just this school, but the name of Jesus out there at the Museum of History and Industry. And that's exactly what Paul is reminding this church today that they are representing Christ's kingdom every time they walk out the door, every time they go to work, every time they open their mouths, they're representing Christ if they have the word Christian in their identity. And they aren't just representing this kingdom individually. We're not just representing this kingdom individually. We are representing how this kingdom operates by doing it as a community. We're not just Christ's representatives individually out there. We are Christ's outpost as a community. It's the same with us. We are called to gospel unity as we seek to represent how the future kingdom of Jesus works. Because it's already started, but it has not yet been consummated. So let's take a look at how Paul exhorts his friends in Philippi here. In chapter 1, starting in verse 27, we'll read till the end of the chapter. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. I'm just going to pause because there's a note in my Bible which is important, and it says in Greek, this says, Only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for your word. Thank you that it is transcendent. Lord, it is the same yesterday, today, and forever, just like you are. Lord, your word is what we want to adhere to. It's what we want to listen to. It's what we want to bring in and let shape 
our inner beings. So I pray that your word would do that by your Holy Spirit this morning and form us as individual Christians and as a community of Jesus followers into the community that you want us to be here in Capitol Hill, here in Seattle. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So Paul, in the first 26 verses of chapter 1, he has just finished recounting what's up with him. And we learn that he is rejoicing that God is using his imprisonment to actually advance the gospel farther than he could have imagined. And now he's gearing up for what's next. He's waiting for his trial in Rome. Death or life? Acquittal, freedom, or execution? That is Paul's lot. That is what he just explained to them is going on with him. And so he, he expects to be set free and see them again, but on the off chance that it will at least be a while, he lays it out for them. He says, whether I come and see you or I am absent, I want to at least hear that you are letting your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is the one thing. It starts with that word only. That's what it means. Whatever happens. If, if this is the only thing you hear or the only thing you read in this letter, let this describe your life. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so the first part of verse 27 gives us the what. This is, this is Paul's exhortation. This will carry us through the letter. Behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that verb, that's why there's a note. There might be a note in your Bible. There might not be. But that word, let your manner of life, it's the word polituomai. And I don't usually do the Greek thing, but do you hear that? Polit, political. This is your politic. This is, this is how you move in the world, in community, in society. And the one of the reasons we know this is what he's saying is because later in chapter 3, verse 20, he says this. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the noun form, polituma, of the same word, let your manner of life. It means behave as citizens. It's basically the verb form of the word citizen. Citizen yourselves like this. And that word worthy, it means fitting. As citizens of this new inaugurated kingdom of heaven, this is what that looks like. This is unfitting. This is fitting. This is not worthy. This is worthy. It's not worthy as in you need to be worthy of the kingdom. No, no, no. You've been made citizens and so act like it. That's what he's saying and the gospel of Christ. He says, behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. The gospel. We, think, we hear that word and we think of religion. We think of maybe a music genre. We think of Christianese. That word is a political word. It means the heralding of news. It's, it's an announcement. That's what gospel means. 
It indicates a new politic, a new regime, a new kingdom. For those of you who think Jesus isn't political, he is. He's not partisan. He doesn't fully endorse the Democratic Party or the Republican Party or the Libertarian Party or the Green Party or who cares. But he's political. He's probably the most political person in history. He claims all authority in heaven and on earth. That doesn't get any more political. He says he is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Eventually, Jesus plans on completely taking over the world and all who reside on the earth. You're telling me Jesus isn't political? He is. One of the most political things you can do is show up to church, is take communion, pledging allegiance wholeheartedly to a king that will eventually ascend the throne of the earth. So how does Paul suggest that the the Philippians behave as these citizens of the kingdom of God, worthy of the gospel of Christ? Let's reread verse 27. He says, Only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So right there in verse 27, we see Paul's exhortation. He wants them to behave as citizens in gospel unity. You want to know how to behave as a citizen and an individual upstanding citizen of the kingdom of heaven? You do it with the other citizens. You do it together. You do it with the group of other believers around you. Look how robust this exhortation to unity is. Remember, this word you is not you as an individual. This is a plural you he's talking. He says I want to hear of you that you, group, you, local church, you, Christians, are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. There's a threefold just emphasis on being one and doing this thing together. He wants to hear that they, all together now, are doing it. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Standing firm in one spirit with one mind. So today we're going to look at five characteristics of gospel unity from our passage today. But just here from verse 27, that last part, we learn three things about gospel unity. First, that it has a source. Second, that it has a method. And third, it has a purpose. So first, gospel unity has a source. What is it? It's the one spirit. He wants to hear that they are standing firm in one spirit. Now, I'm reading the ESV, as probably many of you are, 
And the ESV does not capitalize spirit right here, but it should. Because there's evidence to suggest that Paul is not thinking about being unified in the spirit, lowercase like a unified vibe. He's talking about the spirit who unifies. And we know this because in Ephesians, he's, he calls unity, he says, maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. He never says in the spirit anywhere else, meaning a unified vibe. He means it in the Holy Spirit. And so what do we learn here? We learn that the first thing we need to remember about gospel unity is that we did not make it. We don't need to create unity. We just need to stand firm in the one who did. That's why Paul says maintain it. He doesn't say create unity. He says just believe it's true because it is. The Spirit is the one who also, according to Paul in Ephesians, broke down the dividing walls that separated us. He broke them down in Christ. Walls that we ourselves put up and sometimes we we prop them back up. We don't need to do that because the Spirit broke them down. So the Holy Spirit who becomes ours when we are in Christ is our source of gospel unity. And that's where we start. We don't start by striving. We don't start by running. We start by standing. We start by standing firm in the spiritual unity of the church that the Spirit has made, that Jesus has won, and that God has ordained. And so this Holy Spirit enables us to live as an alternate community, an outpost of the kingdom of God in the midst of this other kingdom that we are citizens of too. So the gospel unity has a source, the spirit. Next, Paul lays out the method of gospel unity, which is intimate collaboration. Look what he says. I want to hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side. One mind. And that's a little bit misleading because he doesn't say one mind right there. He says, with one soul, with one life. The word is psyche. It doesn't mean mind. It means soul. It means life. It's deeper than that. And I know that because in verse 2 of chapter 2, he says mind twice. And it's a different word. And we're going to get to that next time we jump into Ephesians with a gospel mindset. But today we're talking about, about gospel unity And he says, do so with one mind. And it means one life. And so we could read this, stand firm in one spirit as one soul strives side by side. So once we see that the spirit has made us one, we are able to internalize that and combine our efforts together. We become moving as one. Like in Gladiator. When Russell Crowe says, as one, as one, that's what we're doing. When we're striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, this doesn't mean we lose our unique selves in the process. No, Paul elsewhere is clear. Each part of the body has a unique gift to offer. We're all different members of the same body, but we're different members. But we move as one. But as far as our kinship, We are of one life. We are members of one body, which is Christ's body. Now, 
This is best experienced through prayer. We saw in Ephesians that we are to pray at all times in the Spirit for one another. It's in prayer that we, we get to act this out. Now, uh, a lot of you were involved in our month of prayer in January. We prayed for an hour every day in the morning, every day in January. And after a while, many of us who were part of that regularly, we noticed we're just starting to like move as one. Whenever we'd encounter a challenge, something would happen around the, the house at the parsonage, we would be on the same page because we were on the same page. We were spiritually united by prayer. And so as we move forward as a community, when we are gathered together, whether it's on Sunday, whether it's in home group, whether it's a small group, whether it's meeting for coffee, whatever it is, when we bump into each other on the road, go to prayer. Let that be your knee-jerk reaction to seeing one another. And not in a way that's like, yeah, yeah, I'll pray for you. Yeah, all right, see you later. No, no, right then and there. Just jump to prayer because, of course, we forget. I always forget. Just do it right then and there. And over time, that develops this as one reality. And this leads to a posture of co-laboring together. Your loved ones become my loved ones. Your struggles become my struggles. Your joys become my joys. We're on the same team. And, and that word team is appropriate because the word striving has the root word athletic. You know, Paul says striving side by side. That's one word. It says it's sin as in with and athlete. Oh, blah, blah, blah. Athlete as in joining together. It's like you're two on two. Not, sorry. It just, I lost it there. But it's like you are on a team with your side by side doing this together. It's like a three-legged gunny sack race, maybe. <laughs> Paul uses this word later in Philippians, and he, you know, he's talking about unity right here. There's a reason. There's a reason he's talking about unity. He's not just talking about it because, yeah, unity is great. No, no. The Philippians were having a, an issue. And over in chapter 4, we see what it is. He says, in chapter 4, verse 2, he says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. These are two ladies that are fighting. They're not unified. They're fighting. And he says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have what? Labored side by side with me in the gospel. This is personal for Paul because these ladies who are fighting, he loves them and he's fought with them for the gospel. It's the same word. And so what does he urge them to do? He urges them to agree in the Lord. Not like, guys, come on, just sweep it under the rug. Like, it's not a big deal. It might be a big deal. It might be a big deal what's going on between them. But he urges them to agree in the Lord. Why should they agree? Why should they reconcile? Because there's a bigger reason. There's a bigger issue at stake. The gospel's at stake. Infighting, conflict, unnecessary stuff like that is not just wrong because you shall not fight. It's wrong because it distracts you from the gospel. So Paul says, come on. This is pointless. 
Lay your lives down for one another and agree in the Lord. And this leads us to the third thing we learn about gospel unity in verse 27. Gospel unity has a purpose. Back in chapter 1, verse 27, he says, Stand firm in one spirit with one mind, strive side by side. Why? For what purpose? What's the point? For the faith of the gospel. Gospel unity has a purpose. We're unified for a reason. We don't unify for unity's sake. We're unified for a purpose. That purpose is to co-labor together for the faith of the gospel. That is, the faith that comes from the gospel. The faith that originates from this heralding, from this announcement. Guess what? Jesus conquered death. He conquered death and he also conquered your sin. And he forgave you. He cleansed you by his blood so now you can be reconciled with God. So our purpose as a unified community is to partner with God in growing this community. Our goal is not to poach Christians from other churches because, hey, we're doing things better down here. No, it's to get people who haven't given their lives to Christ to come in. It's to extend the kingdom citizenship opportunity to people who have not had it before. To reach those who do not yet have this faith. To glorify God by adding to our number those with whom the Spirit wants to make us one. Unless we think that there's not that much opportunity out there. No, there are so many people in this neighborhood. So many people in this city who need Jesus. College students, single professionals, unhoused neighbors, families, rich, poor, old, young, all of whom need to hear and understand the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus. People are hungry for this. We're starting to see it coming out of a traumatic world time of of pandemic and all this stuff. We're starting to see an openness that we haven't seen for a while. Are we ready for it? Amen. Amen. Are we ready ready to share this good news that Jesus has the power in his death and resurrection to cleanse people from the guilt of their sin and their brokenness? And not just the guilt as in, ah, I'm sorry I did wrong, but the stain, the shame. I'm sorry I did wrong and I just, I feel like a horrible, unworthy, dirty person. Jesus wants to cleanse us from that too. And not just the guilt, not just the stain, but the power of sin. I don't just have to, I don't just give up the guilt. I don't just remove the stain. I get to walk in freedom. I can. That's a miracle. And that's a miracle only made possible by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is the why behind gospel unity. Gospel unity begets more kingdom citizens by welcoming them in. So in verse 27, we see it. The the progression of gospel unity. First, we find our sure footing in the Spirit. Second, we recognize one another as co-laborers, and we pursue one purpose together. And in the rest of our passage we learn of two more parallel realities about gospel unity 
and living as citizens in this new kingdom. And these ones are perhaps the most or the primary differentiator between modern American Christianity and New Testament Christianity. We learn that gospel unity is governed by a fear of God and not by a fear of people. And second, we learn that gospel unity comes with suffering. Ouch. So first, gospel unity has a fear of God and not of others. Verse 28, Paul says, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So he's just finished exhorting them, kind of encouraging them to go forward together for the sake and the struggle of the gospel. And he says, don't be scared. And that word frightened, it doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible. It literally means to be startled. Like, you know, we all have those people in our lives where it doesn't matter what they're doing. If you walk around a corner, they're going to go, whoa, I didn't see you coming. We, we all know those people. It's hilarious. Um, that's what this word means. It means to be startled. Paul is saying that when we are united in our mission, we need not be startled by opposition. It shouldn't surprise us. Whether it's spiritual opposition in the form of spiritual warfare, as we learned in Ephesians 6, that the enemy, the devil, is, is all about that. He's shooting flaming arrows constantly at us as individuals, as, at us as a community. So it's, it, it could be that kind of opposition. Or it could be opposition from a culture that's hostile to Christianity. We need not be surprised. But more than that, we need not be afraid. Firstly, because Jesus told us it was coming. He said, hey, guess what? You're going to face tribulation. Guess what? If people hated me, they're going to hate you too. And so at least we know it's coming. Maybe that's a little bit of comfort. But second, he says, he said, we need not be afraid of people because the worst that people can do is kill your body, which, you know, that's pretty bad. But he says, if you're going to fear anyone, Fear God, because he can kill your body and your soul. So there's a, there's a hierarchy of fear there, and we should fear God, because he's the ultimate judge. And notice here in verse 28 that it's God who decides. You know, he's the one who gets to decide who is destroyed and who is saved. Him alone, not us. And notice that Paul says that showing no fear becomes a sign to people. He says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction. This is interesting. But it's powerful when the people of God show no fear in the face of suffering. You know, we saw that, you know, decades ago with the civil rights movement, with nonviolent protests. You know, people just standing there, Whatever happens, happens, but I'm not going to show any fear. And they suffered, and yet it was a sign. It was a sign to a watching nation that things needed to change. And this is a lesser <laughs> illustration, but, you know, we've all been to those ball games, and you walk out, and there's a megaphone preacher screaming. 
And as Christians, we might go, oh. Although if you're one of those, I'm bringing you up because like, wow. Talk about no fear. It's powerful when the people of God elevate the fear of God above the fear of man. And we don't know who these opponents are, specifically that Paul's talking to about for the Philippians. Clearly, they had some sort of opponents. Um, It's likely that he's referring to some kind of governing authority. Um, Remember, at this moment, Caesar, the emperor of Rome, is both Lord and Savior. That's his title, at least a couple of them. Yet here is a group of worshiping believers worshiping someone else as Lord and Savior. That wasn't likely going to mean kind treatment. And Philippi is a Roman colony, so Roman ways, Roman citizenship, Roman way of life was a big deal to them. But notice that in the face of opposition, whatever that looks like, Paul doesn't recommend that we Christians seize our rights, seize power, or take to Twitter. Nope. That's not what he recommends. And where he goes next is we don't like it. But it brings us to the final thing we learn about gospel unity it comes with suffering. In verse 29 30, he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. You know, when Paul started this church, he was thrown into prison like the first week and run out of town the next day. He, he suffered right, right off the bat in Philippi, and clearly he's still suffering because he's in prison writing this letter. And so here, here he is describing to them the way of Jesus. And he says, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. You know, this is a shocking verse. And it's one that we don't really like. You know, we like verses like Romans 8.28, you know, that says, for God works all things together for the good of those who, are, who love him and who are called according to his purpose. We like to use that verse and say, yeah, 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 you're in a time of suffering. It's really a bummer. God's going to use it. He didn't send it, but he's going to use it for your good. We like that. It doesn't say that here. It says something a little bit more controversial, a little bit more like it just kind of gets under your collar. It says, it has been granted to you. It's been granted to you. That word granted, the root word is grace, gift. You could rephrase this sentence. It has been graciously given to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So, just in case we want to call Paul off his rocker and just kind of write him off, We can just remember, though, what Jesus said. In Matthew 5, he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you 
and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice! This is from Jesus. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Okay? And then we see the apostles in the early church just months after the church was born. In Acts chapter 5, it says, when they, the, the leaders, the priests, the elders, the, the Jewish religious leaders, they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then let them go. Then they, the apostles, left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. So, the early Christians took Jesus seriously when he recommended that they not just tolerate persecution, but rejoice in it and be glad for it. Paul picks up on this in his own life, in his own letters. Later in chapter 3, he says, Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, garbage. It's actually an expletive word. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Then he says, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death. And of course, he needs to turn no further than the example that Jesus laid down in his own flesh. And he will in chapter 2. The, the very heart, the beating heart of Paul's theology, the beating heart of this letter to the Philippians is the poem that reflects the descendancy and the, the ascendancy of Christ. In chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, I've read it a few times, but you can read it on your own time. Glory and exaltation is the final destination. But guess what the route is? Weakness and suffering. If you've watched The Mandalorian, this is the way. Weakness and suffering. Not seizing power, not seizing your rights, not fighting not getting all high and, and social media posting up. No. Weakness and suffering. That's how Paul recommends we go through the world. That's how he recommends we behave as citizens of this new kingdom. And I don't want to get... A, don't get me wrong. I, as dual citizens of America and heaven, we've had it really easy. Seriously, here in America and even in Capitol Hill, we can gather openly and praise Jesus as Lord and Savior. Easy. Right? There's no governing authorities that's going to step in the door and, and get us in trouble, unless we're gathering during COVID shutdowns. But that's amazing. And we can have biblical views. We can, have, we can teach what the Bible says on gender and sexuality. We can preach that Jesus is the only way to salvation and that any other way leads to judgment and hell for eternity. Those are intense views. They're biblical views. But historically and even in other parts of the world today, 
Those are persecutable views. So I'm not saying that we have it hard here in America, because we don't. We don't. But while we aren't persecuted by governing authorities for these views, it doesn't mean they're easy beliefs to hold. You might not go to prison for them, but you might lose friendships. You might create awkward silence at work. You might, even more mildly, you might offend someone because of them. So we can't conflate someone being offended at us with persecution and suffering. However, we do need to build this muscle of fearing God over others. And what better place to practice than in America where we have freedom? We have freedom to offend one another. That's beautiful. Thank God for America. So the more we press into the faith of the gospel of Christ with its balance of truth and love, which is our mission, we are committed to this neighborhood in truth and love, the truth of the gospel, the truth of the scripture, but the love of Jesus Christ, whose love surpasses any other love out there? Give me a definition of love. Jesus' is better because he died for you. He suffered for you. He took your brokenness, your sin on his body, and he died for you. So, as we continue to grow into that, the more we will start looking different from the culture around us. So it, might, it just might get more uncomfortable over time. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen in America. I do care because it's my country. I have kids. But like, really? I don't know. But the kingdom of heaven has a bigger priority. And it informs the way I think about, the way we can think about our citizenship in America. So what's the answer? Is it to look for more suffering because we're supposed to rejoice and be glad in it? No, it's to stay faithful to Jesus, no matter what. As Paul said in verse 8, in chapter 3, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth, the value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's what keeps us centered. That's what keeps us balanced. That's what keeps us on track as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, drawing near to our Lord Jesus Christ. So, our citizenship in the kingdom of Christ supersedes our citizenship here. It also informs our citizenship here. There's a lot of don't get me wronging, I'm saying, but don't get me wrong. We don't wash our hands of Seattle. We don't, we don't say, you know, those, those aren't my problems. I'm a, I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. I'm not going to get involved. I'm just going to go to church and worship and stay out of this mess. No, that's not what we do. Because what did Jesus do? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. If that's not getting your hands dirty, I don't know what is. He was the eternal son of God. Completely perfect and content. He's God. He took on flesh. He took on humanity. He took on our, our sin. He took on our problems. 
We do what he did. We get our hands dirty. We get involved. We love as Jesus loved. We get involved in the issues, but we don't do it alone. We do it together. We do it in the spirit. We do it with gospel unity. But more than that, we do it for a reason, for the faith of the gospel. After all, we are an outpost of the kingdom. As Justin used to say, we are an embassy of the future. We're ambassadors from the future because that kingdom's coming. But by golly, this is a hard task. It's hard for any one person, of course, and it's hard for a group of people. We're all sinners. You know, Euodia and Syntyche, they were at each other's throats. Some of us are at each other's throats. But because of the gospel, we have the resources we need to agree in the Lord. Because Jesus has taken on our sin. He's taken on our stupidity. He's taken on our self-destructive habits. And he pinned them to the cross.